Good morning. We have been studying in the book of Genesis, and last week we took a Sunday to really have more of a Three Kings message or Epiphany message, but we're back in it. And what we're going to see today as we get into Genesis in chapter 11, in the latter part of verse 10, we're going to see that Moses is now going to incorporate the generations or the account of Terah, who was the father of Abraham. First Abram, then Abraham, as God changed his name. As we look at his account, there's not much here, and yet there is. Because what Moses is doing is bridging the gap, as he records all of these historical texts, he's bridging the gap between the Tower of Babel, which we studied two weeks ago, and the account of Abraham and Sarah, which will take us well into the book of Genesis. But we need to know, how do we get from one generation to the next? And so in this situation, you have this connection through the genealogies, uh, giving us the time frame so that we can understand when things happened, how they happened, and the lineage between Adam to Noah, and then from Noah all the way down to Abram, and then from Abram to David, and then from David to Christ. But let's open up in a word of prayer, and we'll get right into it today. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us these genealogies, that you give us these sections in Scripture, so that we can know that, first of all, your word is true. It's reliable. It's history. It's not myth. It's not fairy tale. It's not conjecture. It's, it's history. Recorded as history from historical sources written by those who live them those events that they record. And so now as we look at this genealogy, we ask that you would give us the wisdom to understand why do we have this information and what things does it tell us that we might really properly prepare our hearts to receive all that you have for us. In addition, as we get to the account of Abram, as he begins his relationship with you, may we be challenged in our spirits to trust you. For as you make promises, we are called to surrender You make promises to us, and our response is simply to surrender, as Abram did, and walk by faith. And so we ask that you bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we start with the generations of Terah. Terah, T-E-R-A-H. Terah, and Terah's genealogy is recorded for us, and we pick it up in the latter part of verse 10, where we left off two weeks ago in Genesis 11. And we learn that two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old. He became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. This is an important connection for Shem is one of the three sons of Noah, uh, one of the very few people alive at this time that we're studying who lived before the flood. Clearly Noah did, his wife, but Noah had three sons that made it onto the ark. There may have been other children, but three sons that came onto the ark, and they had their wives. And there you have the eight souls who were saved through the flood. So Shem becomes an important connection between the old world, the antediluvian or pre-flood world, and the world that we have so much 
understanding of the world we live in, the world that so much history begins to record at this point in history. But prior to Genesis 11, there's very little in the way of external sources. There are some, but not nearly as much as after when we start to talk about the time of Abram. So this is an important connection. And we see Shem and his son of Axed. Shem was born 98 years before the flood. Okay, and he, and just two years after his elder brother, Japheth, Japheth was born 100 years before the flood. So as they were preparing for the flood, these children of Noah were born. Ham was uh, the other son. He was born sometimes after Shem. He was Noah's younger son. But Shem died. Now, this is so important. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Shem died just 25 years before the death of Abraham. He died 25 years before the death of Abraham. So he was alive for all of one, all but 25 years of Abraham's life or Abraham's life. That is so important when you're connecting history from the antediluvian or pre-flood world to the time of Abraham. That means that as a resource, Shem was alive and we, we have some guesses as to how some of those interactions may have happened, but we know that Shem was alive the majority of Abram's life. So if Abraham had any questions about the pre-flood world, he had access to someone who lived before the flood and was on the ark. Is that important? Yes. Can you imagine if you had access to someone who lived during the Revolutionary War? For those who love American history, boy, that would be something, or the Civil War. And actually, if you go back maybe 100 years, uh, there were people who were, let's say 100 years, yeah, people who were still alive who had lived through the Civil War, because that was the 1860s. And people like my, my Nana lived to be 107, so she was born in 1912, the year the Titanic sunk, right? And so to speak to somebody as a young person, to speak to someone who, who saw all of the progress over, over 100 years is fascinating. And uh, at one point in her life, uh, when she turned 100, I believe, her hometown of Medford did an article in the paper, which I have a copy of, and they asked her a whole bunch of questions about what life was like in Medford, the town that she lived in uh, 100 years ago or throughout her life. And so it's fascinating when you have living history to appeal to or, or to, to question, you learn so much more than you would from just a book. Now, a number of years ago, uh, I had some history books, and I got them at a, a like a, basically a, a flea market. They were selling these books, and I saw there were two American history books that were written when Herbert Hoover, I believe, was president. So if you don't know when that was, it was the 1920s, 1929 into the early, early 1930s. You would be amazed at how much history has changed. When you see the perspective from people who lived through history, there were people alive at that time that, that, that had lived through the Civil War, people that had experienced those things. Perspective is incredibly different. No spin, and if there was a spin, uh, it was certainly different than the spin we read about today. So why am I pointing this out? I am here on Sunday mornings in the studies in Genesis to make it abundantly clear to you that we are studying history. Please do not think of the book of Genesis as anything else. And I think I've made that clear over the weeks we've been studying. We are studying a history book. All right? And that is very important. Oh, but Pastor Tim, what about the miracles? Well, what about the miracles in the New Testament? Is he the same God in the beginning God or not? Amen? So, 
That's my point. So Shem died just 25 years before the death of Abraham. And none of Noah's sons were, uh, had children before the flood while they were building the ark. That may have been by design, but for whatever reason, they did not. And then we read of our Faxed, who again was born uh, after the flood, to Shem and his son Shelah. And we read in verses 12 to 13. When Arphaxed had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxed lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. So you have another generation now. And uh, people have asked me, uh, how long is a generation? Well, a generation is not an exact number. A generation means parents, children, children, grandchildren. So there's a generation. So that could be 20 years, maybe even less. Or it could be 40 years. It could be So when we talk about a generation, you can't pin that down. You can't just say, well, a generation is 40 years. Many Bible teachers and uh, those who interpret prophecy will often say, well, the generation is 40 years. And no, a generation is parents to children, children to grandchildren, and that is a number that varies greatly, especially at this point in the history in Genesis. So the longevity of mankind, I had a question recently, it might have been Diego who asked the question uh, during coffee hour. He asked a question, and uh, most of the time the questions I like to get during coffee hour is where's the cream, Uh, where's the sugar, because my brain is shot by the time coffee hour comes around. uh, I put everything I have into teaching these lessons. So if you ask me a question like explain the Trinity during coffee hour, I I might look at you a little strange. But I, I, he asked me the question, why did, I think it was, a couple people have asked this question, so if I got that wrong, I'm sorry, but uh, why did people live so long? It's a great question, right? This generation of Terah, this document here that we're reading from, begins to explain why and how the age of mankind, the lifespan of mankind, changed from nearly a thousand years to dropping down to maybe around 600 years, to all of a sudden now we're down to more normal lifespans. How did that happen? Well, there's a logical explanation to that if you read through this section of Scripture. See, the longevity of mankind began a steady decline after the flood. If you go to, uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you if you read in, in uh, Psalm 90, which is uh, actually a prayer of Moses, uh, the man of God, right? Uh, so this is Moses who's recording the book of Genesis. And this is what we read. It's one of the oldest psalms, if not the oldest psalm. Uh, And it it tells us this in verse 10. Moses writes, The length of our days is 70 years, or 80, if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. So what's the point? That in the time of Moses, who is recording the book of Genesis from historical sources... He's already identifying a lifespan that is comparable to the lifespan today. If you would say, well, that person lived to be 90 or that person lived to be 100 or 107 like my nana. That's a long time by today's standards, right? That's not the usual. I think we would say in today's culture, in our country, 80 is pretty good. But it used to be where 80 was great. Well, now 90 is kind of good. And if you make it into your 90s, well, that's spectacular, right? That's a, that's a great long life. Praise God. And if you know the Lord, amen. You know? So, okay. So how did we get here? How did we get to this place? And clearly, things haven't changed all that much in terms of lifespans from the time of Moses. They have dipped down over the years, come up and down, depending on where you live, the culture you live in, how you eat, you know, all of those things, genetic factors. 
But clearly, something outside of just genetic factors changed the lifespan of mankind during this time that we're studying. Now, this was the effect of the vast climatological and physiographical changes caused by the flood. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you were born before the flood, then you would have uh, experienced things on the earth that would have perhaps better prepared you to live longer, but if you were born after the flood, you would expect now a steady decline based on the changes that had happened. First of all, there was a protective water vapor canopy, which was gone. Uh, It had uh, protected the earth. We studied this in the book of Genesis in chapter 1. Also talked about it throughout the flood. The rich soils that existed before the flood also had changed. Uh, There were places on the earth that didn't have those rich soils. And today we have arid areas of our planet And some areas are wonderful, like that we called New Jersey the Garden State. Obviously, they weren't looking at Hudson County and um, parts of of the counties close to New York. I don't mean to pick on Hudson County, but I don't think anyone would look at Hudson County or even Union County and say, oh, the Garden State. But if you go to the south of Jersey or north or west, you'll see why they call this the Garden State. We have a lot of rich soil. Uh, So this was diminishing after the flood somewhat throughout the earth. Uh, Also genetic mutations, uh, they were increasing because of the inbreeding populations. That is, people became less resilient genetically, which you would expect to happen. That combined with the general environment being more rigorous than it had been before the flood begins to explain why all of a sudden the lifespan steadily declines from generation to generation. And then we get to Sheila and his son Eber, in verses 14 and 15. And we read that when Shelad lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber, and after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. So again, we're going from generation to generation here. And I want to point out something for those of you who may be familiar with the genealogy in Luke's Gospel, the genealogy of Christ in Luke's Gospel in chapter 3, and specifically verse 36. Because in that genealogy, which is written in Greek, there is reference to a person that fits between Shelah and his son Eber. Now let me first of all say that many times, not always, but many times, genealogies were abridged. Even the genealogy of Christ is, uh, looking at Matthew's gospel, they skip certain individuals for various reasons. Sometimes it's because the person was wicked. So they'll say the son of, but what they really mean is the grandson of or descendant of. The word is perfectly uh, capable of expressing both in the original language. Now, why I say this is because some people look at that and they think, oh, you see, there's a contradiction in Scripture. Uh, There are reasons why generations were sometimes uh, condensed. Uh, And then sometimes one portion of Scripture will insert somebody in the genealogy, and it's not in the other portion of Scripture. There may be, I don't know exactly why, but I do know that if you look in Luke's Gospel, you'll see that Canaan, and it's C-A-I-N-A-N, is inserted between Arphaxad and Shelah. Now, it's at least possible that Terah's genealogy is abridged, that we see throughout Scripture. That doesn't change the veracity or the reliability of Scripture. But if so, there would have been an additional source than the Masoretic text. The Jewish scriptures do not include this. So where did they find this name? Now again, it may be a bridge, but then what's the source? Well, sadly, I think you probably know this, Scripture had to be copied 
and interpreted from language to language using various sources. And it explains why sometimes in your Bible there'll be alternate re- renderings or readings of a text. It doesn't mean that the scripture is wrong. It's mean that, it means that you have various different copies and there may be some variations because I can promise you that if each of us were given the responsibility to translate something from another language that, let's say, we, we actually read and were familiar with, or maybe we weren't. Let's say we handed you something in Spanish, and with a dictionary, uh, we said, just translate this verse from Spanish to English. And let's say you didn't even speak Spanish, so you had to look it up. Do you think we might get a few variations of translations? Well, of course we would. So that's one of the reasons I think that this may be a scriptural uh, copying error. Uh, First of all, the name isn't found in any of the Masoretic manuscripts, and the name is found in some of the Greek manuscripts. So what may have happened, and not the earliest, someone made a copying error, and it kind of made its way into the Greek New Testament. But if we look at the source material that is at, the, at its oldest, this name Canaan doesn't show up there. So I think it's probably an error. Now, that doesn't mean God's word has errors. It does mean that when we look at all of the texts, we can deduce some of the copies are not consistent with others. Because I want to share with you that those that made copies weren't necessarily inspired. People made copies, and people have translated the word of God for their own purposes to manipulate people. I think you know that. So every copy is not inspired, but the original is. And since we don't have the originals, we only have text and source sources from that shortly thereafter the time many of these things were written, it's hard to know exactly what the original was. But think about this for a minute. With a document written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors in three languages on three continents, it's amazing to me that we see virtually everything we have consistently interpreted. There are a few places where there are questions. Now, if you allow that to stand in the way of your trusting the word of God, I feel badly for you. That would be, as that cliche says, right? Throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So please understand, I don't hide from these things. When I come across something like that, I research it to death, obviously. And I share those things with you so that when someone comes to you and says, Oh, you see... Jesus isn't the Messiah because in Luke's gospel in chapter 3, they inserted a name. I think that's a stretch, but you can answer that intelligently. Can I hear an amen? All right, we'll move on. That's not important. It's not so important. Okay, then we get to Eber and his son Peleg. And this is an important generation, for it says, When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, Peleg was born 101 years after the flood. That gives us the ability to date the Tower of Babel and the subsequent dispersion, which came after the, after the Tower of Babel. That is the division, which we talked about two weeks ago. It is a reasonable estimate, as I've shared with you, that there were thousands, possibly tens of thousands, some more uh, generous estimates say there could have been hundreds of thousands of people on the earth during the Tower of Babel. The problem is we don't know exactly when, but we do know that it happened during Peleg's lifetime. Uh, The scripture tells us that. We studied that previously. Uh, I think we were in chapter 10. 
So, did it happen when he was born at 101, uh, 101 years after the flood? Or did it happen when he was, uh, let's see, 229, I think? If I got that number, yeah, 229. Did it happen then? We, we, we don't know. That's the problem. Uh, so, or actually, it's 239, sorry. So, if it happened when he, he was very old, then there could have been tens to maybe even 100,000, maybe more people on the earth at the time of the Tower of Babel. If it happened shortly after he was born, then in that case it was probably thousands to tens of thousands. Enough people to properly interpret what happened at the Tower of Babel. Amen? Okay, so a little bit of information we get from that generation. Now we get to Peleg and his son Raoul. And in verse 18 we read that when Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Raoul. And after he became the father of Raoul, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. Now there is a sudden drop, I mean sudden drop, in longevity here in terms of the lifespans. We go from 464 years for Eber to 239 years for Peleg. So, wait a minute, why is that? Well, some have suggested, well, this is a, a genealogical gap. This is one of those places where they left out generations. Possible. Again, doesn't, doesn't take away from the veracity or reliability of Scripture to say they may have jumped a few generations. But I think, quite frankly, the answer is obvious. The decline may be explained by the traumatic conditions that existed after the dispersion. We talked about this two weeks ago. Suddenly, people are divided up into seven, possibly 70 different languages and cultures, and now they have to survive after they've gotten used to surviving as a society. Uh, imagine, if you will, if suddenly, God forbid, uh, our nation divided into 50 states. How traumatic would that be in terms of uh, this state produces this uh, product or, or has this technology, and now all of a sudden we don't have that anymore? And you can imagine that when the people were divided like that, life became more challenging. It became more difficult, and they had to venture out, and they actually were scattered throughout the earth. So the challenges associated with the confusion of tongues and the migration that followed uh, would easily explain why lifespans begin to plummet. The close inbreeding as well, after the flood, was further aggravated by the dispersion. Now, rather than having the choice of uh, perhaps marrying and, and having a family with people throughout the 70 nations, now people are gathered in much smaller groups. So I'm sharing these things with you so you understand the Bible's history. And, and if you ask the right questions, and I think many of you have asked these questions, you're going to get the right answers when you approach the Word of God as history. So this would have contributed to a sudden increase in genetic mutation and the decrease in lifespans. Life is more rigorous. Okay, that's what we learn from these particular generations. Then we go on and we see Reu and his son Sereg in verses 20 through 21. When Reu had lived 20, uh, excuse me, 32 years, he became the father of Sereg. And after he became the father of Sereg, uh, Reu lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. Then in verse 22, we have Sereg and his son Nahor. Now we're getting closer to Abraham. When Sereg lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Sereg lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And then in verse 24, we get to Nahor and his son Terah, who is the father of Abraham, called Abram at this time. When Nahor had lived 29 years, 
He became the father of Terah, and after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And so we get to verse 26. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and not in that order. Abram is mentioned first because that introduces many chapters ahead of us as we're going to look at the account of Abram, who's the father of the faith and the ancestor of David and ancestor of Messiah. But he wasn't the oldest. So after 70 years, he started having children, and the three of those children are mentioned. They're not the only children. They're just the children that come into the account that we're going to talk about. And we end with the verse, the first part of the verse, verse 27, this is the account of Terah. That's the account of Terah, right there. It begins and ends uh, in this section, the latter part of verse 10 to the first part of verse 27. Now, it's not a lot of information, but even just the things we've talked about today help us to understand the Bible as history, specifically Genesis 1 through 11 as history. So, Abram was not Terah's firstborn. We know this. He was born when his father was 130 years old. Well, we know this from uh, latter scripture in, in chapter 11 and also in chapter 12, which we'll look at. All of Abram's ancestors listed here. Think about this with me. Put on your thinking cap, as my teachers used to say. All of Abram's ancestors, all of them that are mentioned in this section, except Peleg and Nahor, were alive at the time of his birth. Take that in. Shem, all the way down. Now, after the dispersion, they may not have been easily accessible, but Peleg and Nahor... Uh, died before because their lifespans were significantly shorter. But all of those ancestors are still around, right? And Noah died just two years before the birth of Abram. So there's quite a bit of overlap. And I've shared this with you before. Adam certainly lived long enough to overlap his life span was so long that he overlapped with Lamech and Methuselah. And of course, those are the ancestors of the father and grandfather of Noah. And Shem is the son of Noah. So you actually can go from uh, Adam to Lamech or Methuselah to Shem to Abram. So if you're going to play that game of telephone, remember that when we were kids? You whisper in one person's ear something, and by the time it gets several People later, it's something completely different. The argument against uh, Scripture being trusted can't be made because there's so few generations that overlapped. Again, Adam, let's say Lamech or Methuselah, uh, Shem, right? Abraham. So that's pretty reliable in my book in terms of passing down history. The history you study in school now is certainly more unreliable. I already shared with you how I read a history book from 1929. It's amazing how history has changed. So it, it, it's incredible how people attack the scripture uh, without reason and without cause. Well, anyway, let's move on. So this is the account of terror. And I've shared this with you before. I'll briefly sum it up. This is now the sixth occurrence of that formula that I've mentioned so many times, which marks the key subdivisions of the book. This word toledoth in the Hebrew or generations in the Greek is used ten times in the book of Genesis. It's actually where we get the name for the book, Genesis. I think it's important 
Now we understand these are the major divisions. And this is the phrase that allows us to break them down. This is the account of. Many people read this and they see that as the introduction to the account. It's actually the conclusion of the account, which is why it starts to become confusing if you don't get that right. So this is the writer's signature. The, the, all of the Babylonian tablets that were written were, were passed on from generation to generation. And this we know that this practice was in place. History confirms this. Archaeology confirms this. Each of these patriarchs kept the narrative records of their generations, inscribed them on stone or clay tablets, as I've said, put their name to the end of it, and then they gave the tablets to the next in line. And that's how this history was preserved, the way that all history is preserved, really. When we don't know something, we look to archaeology, which studies ancient times, and they go back and they dig things up and they determine what may have happened. If the history is recorded for us and passed on to us, then we don't need to do that as much. We, we have texts, or in this case, tablets, which record the truth. So Moses eventually received these tablets, and he wrote the last section of, of the book of Genesis from, from the sources he had. But all of this came to him. He had all of this history. You'll remember that Moses was raised with all the knowledge and understanding of the Egyptians, right? So he was uniquely qualified to be able to take these documents that were accessible to him and compile the book of Genesis. And he organized and edited everything, all of the original narratives under divine inspiration. So aren't we fortunate to have more history than anyone else on the planet? No other culture or faith has the history that we've been studying up to this point, which is really awesome. Well, the result is the entire collection finally became the first of the five books of Moses. So... I've made that point. We will move on. Now I want to get into what is the more practical portion of today's study. That was, the, that was maybe the more historical, scientific, uh, some of the explanations of some of the questions you may have had along the way related to lifespans, and hopefully you're good with that. And if you have more questions, you can ask me next week, not during coffee hour. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's just a joke. Okay. Hopefully you don't have any more questions, because I think I've been pretty thorough. All right, so now we're going to see, we now get into another document. And all of the source material for what we, what we have going forward here, pretty much uh, all the way into chapter 25, comes from Abraham's son, Isaac. And it surprised me when I first studied the book of Genesis like this. And I said, well, where's the generations of Abraham or Abram? Uh, well, we go from Terah to Isaac. Now, what that tells me is that maybe Abraham was less concerned with recording history, or maybe he relied more on his son Isaac to maintain the family history. Maybe, you know, he shared, obviously, he shared the accounts that he had experienced. And maybe one of Isaac's major contributions to the word of God is recording the history of his father himself and his descendants. Maybe, I don't know. But it's Isaac we look to now who provides us with the generations or the account of Isaac. And it includes the lifespan and the life story of his father, Abram. Which, again, I'm going to go back and forth. I know I will. Unfortunately, uh, I'm going to go back and forth between Abram and Abraham. Same person. He's at this time referred to and called Abram. Okay, so now we're in Abram's genealogy. And we read in verses, uh, latter part of verse 27 through verse 30, the Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. 
And while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. That would be Babylon. In the land of his birth. And Abram and Nahor both married. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. She'll later be named Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And she was the daughter of Haran, uh, the, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. So we're given a little bit of information about Terah's family. And, of course, the genealogy has brought us to Abram. And now the son of Abram, Isaac, has recorded a history that includes the account of how they got to the promised land, the land of what at that time was referred to as the land of Canaan. So Terah and his sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, we learn a bit about this family. As I said, Abram was not Terah's firstborn. He was born when his father was 130 years old. And Haran may have been the eldest son, uh, which would have made him about 60 years older than Abram. So this family is quite spread out. He already had a son, that is, Haran already had a son named Lot, and two daughters named Milcah and Iscah. So he was much older than Abram, almost really about, could have been his father, as I guess is what I'm trying to say. But he died a premature death in Ur of the Chaldeans. So at some point, for whatever reason, he passed when they were still in Babylon. But Abram married his half-sister. We, we learn this later on in chapter 20 of the book of Genesis, that his half-sister Sarai uh, became his wife. She was the daughter of his father, but not his mother. Now, close marriages were not yet genetically dangerous, and they weren't yet prohibited. They would become prohibited under the Levitical law. But at this point, just like in the beginning with Adam, there is much more of what we would today refer to as incest, but at the time was not genetically dangerous. Sarai was unable to have children at this time, so things looked pretty bleak for them in terms of uh, their tribe and their clan. Uh, But that we're told here, we know how the story ends. Well, Nahor, the other brother, married his niece, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, and had many children, which we'll find out in chapter 22 of the book of Genesis. His descendants later lived in Aram Narahem, or Naharaim, sorry, uh, or northwest Mesopotamia. The area was later called Paddan Aram, or Haran, by Jacob and his family. So this is going to come up again. These descendants will come up again uh, when, you know, Isaac... Wants, uh, when Abraham wants to find uh, a wife for Isaac and then later on with Jacob. The, the story gets back to those family members, but not right now. Okay, so here's what happens. We're told that Terah made a journey to Canaan, or at least he started out on it. And I refer you, I won't read from there today, but I'll refer you to Acts chapter 7, uh, where Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, recaps these things. And so between what we learn in Acts chapter 7, which I encourage you to read this week, and here in Genesis 12, 11 and 12, we're able to piece together what happened. First, we know that Terah left Ur of the Chaldeans and traveled toward the land of Canaan. Let's read in verse 31. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, Haran is on the way to Canaan, as I've shared with its northwest Mesopotamia, in what would be today Iraq, Syria, that area, okay? So 
here's what we know, that Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. So the family, with their patriarch Terah, have moved from Babylon to a place somewhere between Babylon and Canaan. And that happened, we're told, there. Ur was an old and prosperous city in the days of Abram. It was a, a good place to live. In fact, archaeological excavations have revealed a great library and thousands of clay tablets. Why do I point that out? Because that's how this history was preserved for us, on clay tablets, which last a whole lot longer than papyrus scrolls. Okay, Papyrus scrolls are easier, but they don't last as long. Now, practically everyone knew how to read and write long before Abram's day. Contrary to what some people would tell you, historians would tell you, no one knew how to read or write, so they couldn't preserve the scripture. So it was just an oral tradition that was passed on from person to person, and therefore it got all messed up, and we believe things that aren't true. That's the story. That's the hoax. That's the fake news. The truth is, clay tablets preserved this history, and it was passed on to Moses. But I've made that point. Now, he may have responded, that is, Terah, may have responded to the vision that Abram received from God. In, in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, we know that Abram actually received a vision from God. And I'll just read uh, what it says there. We read, uh, Stephen writes, The God of glory appeared to our father Abram while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So it started with a vision that Abram received, but Terah decided to travel with his family, including Abram, to this place, the land of Canaan, and they stopped in Haran. Now, Joshua, when he writes, confirms that Terah was an idolater, at least early on in his life. He was an, an idolater living in Ur, a place of great idolatry in Babylon. But it's possible that he left the land of idolatry in order to serve the Lord. That's what we believe. We don't know. We know Abram ultimately served the Lord. And that's probably why. But the Lord revealed himself to Abram. And so Terah and his entire family settled 600 miles away in northwest Mesopotamia in the town of Haran, was probably named as a memorial to his deceased son. So it's not just coincidental that the relatives of Haran settled in a town named Haran. Okay, I think that makes no sense. It's more, more obvious to me that they named the town Haran after their dead relative. Well, Abram, Lot, and Sarai are specifically mentioned, but we know that Nahor and Milcah, they went as well. We see them, again, they come up later in this story, and then we see their descendants living in Haran years later. Okay, so here's the challenge this morning. We've got a lot of history, a lot of information. We've set ourselves up very well to study the life of Abram, who becomes Abraham, and all of the promises that God made to him and fulfilled in his life. That We're set up for that. But as we go through the life of Abram, you're going to see there are various challenges to our faith that we need to consider. And this morning, I want us to sort of close with this understanding that God makes promises and he is faithful. Amen? But we are not in control of the promises God makes. The only thing we can do as people of faith is trust in the promises of God. How does one trust in the promises of God? 
Well, that's a very broad question, but there's a very simple answer. Through surrender to God's will. So I'm going to ask the question again. How does one trust in the promises of God? Well, the answer is simple. By surrendering your will. Submitting to God. That's the lesson. That's what we really end with here. As we've gone through all this genealogy and history, we come to the question, has God made promises to us? Amen? Are we submitted to his will? Are we trusting in the promises of God? I think of that hymn, standing, standing, standing on the promises of Christ my Savior. Standing on the promises of God. Are we standing on the promises of God? Well, in this section here, which I'm going to read, Abram makes a decision. He makes a decision to leave his father's household in Haran, about halfway to the land of Canaan. And that took faith. Look at verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Now that's referring to the promise or the vision that he received when he was still in Babylonia. But for some period of time, they've been living about halfway on the way to God's promises. Have you ever felt like that? Have you been living about halfway on the way to God's promises being fulfilled in your life? Well, why is that? Well, it starts with obeying his will and submitting to God. See, if you want to enter into all that God has for you and and, and receive and experience all of the promises God has made to you as his child, you have to completely obey. If you only halfway obey, you don't receive and, and experience the promises of God. Amen? So here's where he is. He's sort of in between leaving and getting to where he's called to be, which I think describes probably all of us today. We oftentimes find ourselves in the middle of trusting God's promises, uh, finding it hard to completely trust what he said to us, but at the same time, not willing to stay in the place that he's called us from. And I think that probably accurately describes every one of us this morning in some way. What we learn here, he says, I will show you, the land I will show you. Go, leave your country your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And here's the promises. Here are the promises. Here's the promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Wow. That's a lot of blessing. I didn't count, but I think the word bless was used a few times, right? A lot of blessing promised to Abram. He got as far as Haran, and he hasn't received the blessings. But God has blessings for him. And the beginnings of blessings that would be not just for his people, but for the whole world. And it starts with one man receiving a vision and trusting God. And carrying it all the way through. And surrendering his heart to God and to his will. That's where all promises of God must find themselves if we're going to experience the blessings of God. We have to trust in the promises of God, and we do that by surrendering to his will. So the Lord had called them to leave her of the Chaldeans, to travel to the land of Canaan. He'd left his country and his people uh, with his family to travel to an unknown place. That took faith. But he had yet to leave his family they had chosen to settle in northwest Mesopotamia. 
And so he decided finally, after some period of time, to leave. But this was after his father, Terah, died. So he didn't feel he was... It was long, no longer was he bound. He didn't feel that he was bound to his father. So now he could follow through on the call of God on Abraham's life. He had received several unconditional promises from the Lord concerning his future. And we're told in verses 2 through 3 what those promises were. The Lord would make his descendants into a great nation, and the Lord would bless him. The Lord would make his name great, and he would be a blessing to others. And the Lord would bless his allies and curse his enemies. Finally, the Lord would bless all mankind through his descendants. And specifically, we know one descendant, his name, Jesus the Christ. That promise is right here. It was made to Abram when he lived in the place of Babylon, the land of idolatry. But he has yet to enter into some of those things. But he does when he journeys to Canaan. And so in verses 4 through 9... Last section this morning. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. It's always good when you read something or you learn something that so-and-so did exactly what the Lord told him to do. It always gets better from there. Would you agree? Amen? So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, that is your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on toward the hills of Bethel later called Bethel, the house of God, is what Bethel means. And he pitched his tent, and with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev, which is the south, the desert. So we we found out in this section, and we'll pick it up again next week, Abram did exactly, he took some time, but he did exactly what God had called him to do. And I think if you're honest with yourself, if you have a call upon your life, It's taken you a little while to get into that. And you may not even be there yet. You may have just ventured out. You may be a halfway at the halfway point. God hasn't abandoned you. But you're not waiting on God. God's waiting on you. Can I hear an amen? God's waiting on you to surrender and respond to his call. That's what stands between you and I, us, and God's perfect will in our lives. Abraham is going to be on a faith journey. He's going to learn to trust God through all different sorts of things. But that process can't even begin until he's in the place that God has called him to be. And now he is. He believed in the Lord's promises. He followed his call by faith. That's where it starts for all of us. He trusted God to bring him to a place he had never seen before. And by the way, that's why it's hard to trust God. Because he's promised to bring us to a place we've never been before. A place we've never seen before. And that takes faith. God had called him while he was living in Ur. And that call remained while he was living in Haran. It it didn't go away, as the book of Romans tells us. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. No one can take them away from you. Well, now he left his family to travel an unknown road to an unknown place. And that's exactly where you are on your faith journey. You're on an unknown road. That is, you don't know where you're going. To an unknown place. You don't know what it's going to be like when you get there. That's called faith. 
That's a faith journey. And if you're not on that journey, and you're doing everything in your life to control every aspect of your life and end up exactly where you want to be, you're not trusting God. That's a harsh way to say that, but it's still true. So all of us control freaks out there that are trying to mitigate every possible thing that could possibly deviate from our plan, knock it off. Get out of Haran and get to Canaan. But Canaan's scary. I don't know what's going to happen there. Exactly. But you're never going to experience the promises of God until you trust him and surrender to his will. All of Abraham's story begins with this simple step of faith. He ultimately becomes the father of the faith, but not until he takes this simple step. This is a big step, a huge step. It's not easy. It's difficult. It's challenging. It will bring trials. It will bring all kinds of uh, moments where he's very uncomfortable or fearful. But ultimately, he becomes the man of God that God has called him to be because he trusts him. And he surrenders his will to God. Realize this. His obedience to God's call enabled his heirs, his descendants, to receive an inheritance from God. And until he did, they wouldn't. Did you hear what I said? Until he did, they wouldn't. So all the things you're trying to accomplish, parents, in your children's lives, it's not going to happen until you do. And until you do, you're just teaching your children to hold back and not trust God. The minute you trust God with them and with you and your life and all that God has for you, regardless of how difficult it might become, your children will begin to understand faith as they see it through you. Oh, he trusted God to provide for his heirs, though he himself never received the inheritance. You know that, right? He didn't. None of the patriarchs ever settled down in the promised land. He realized that his true inheritance was eternal. It wasn't temporal. You may not see the result of your faith in your family's life. That doesn't matter. God's promises are sure. In fact, he had no, inherit, uh, no descendants to inherit the promised land at this time. He didn't have any descendants. You know what he had? A promise from God. He had a promise. That's all you need. So he traveled 400 miles away. He had traveled 600, now he traveled 400 more miles away to the land of Canaan at the age of 75. Folks, some of you out there are saying, I'm too old to serve God. His nephew Lot chose to follow Abram and Sarai. I suspect he had become a son to him, clearly. They went to the promised land. And they had accumulated significant wealth and several servants in Haran because God had blessed them and provided for their needs. And he always will. He's not going to call you to some place he hasn't provided for you to be able to go. When someone says, oh, pastor, I'm called to go on the mission field. I just don't have any money. I say, well, then wait till God provides the money. Don't look to go fund me. I mean, listen, those places, I don't want to be too harsh, but that's man trying to get things done. I understand that. But if you're going on a mission trip, You might want to rely on God. God will provide what you need to do what he's called you to do. And if he's not providing, you're not probably called, at least not at this time. Where God guides, he provides. And so, I've tested God with that, by the way. Maybe almost a little irreverently. Because (laughs) there are times where I've trusted God and I say, well, God, I'll do it. If you do it, I'll go. And then he does it and then I go. And then I feel good about it because I know, well, something happens to me. At least I know I'm in the right place. But like sometimes people try to get God's will done on earth. You know, they 
whoop everybody up and just a few more dollars and we can do this thing. And I've been the exact opposite. I'm the guy that like, no, don't even mention it. Don't even say anything about the need. Let's see what God does. Offerings, we don't do that here. You know why? Because the day there's no resources, I'm not called to be here. By the way, we have plenty. That's why you're never going to hear me talk about it. So I know I'm where I'm supposed to be because God is providing for my needs. That's the way you'll know. That's the way you'll know. But God is so good to us. Amen. Oh, my goodness. He's so good. They traveled to the center of the land and they camped at a place called Shechem, which will come up later in the account of Genesis. Abram realized that the land was already occupied by Canaanites. Now, imagine if God called you to purchase a home and you went to the home and there were people living there. And you said, well, this is the home that God has promised us, except the family says, we're not moving. That's what that was like. The Lord appeared to Abram and promised to give his descendants this land. The Lord had appeared to Abram before in Ur of the Chaldeans. He may have appeared again, I suspect he did, to encourage a discouraged Abram. And so what did Abram do? This is so important. This is what I want you to take home. This is la comida sobra. This is the leftovers that you're going to take home with you. Are you ready? Abraham responded by building a sacrificial altar to worship the Lord. Altars are places of surrender. That's what they are. An altar is a place of surrender. He now surrenders to the will of God based on the promises of God with nothing else but faith to believe that will come true. He built an altar. Brothers and sisters, if you haven't built an altar in a certain area of your life, get to it. The sooner the better. Surrender your will to the promises of God. He will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. So Abram responded by building a sacrificial altar to the Lord at Shechem. Then he travels 20 more miles and camps on a mountain between Bethel and Ai. Now Abram believed that the land would someday be occupied by his descendants. One little problem, he doesn't have any. But that's not a problem for God. Because God is faithful. Amen? He once again built a sacrificial altar. A second time in this account. Why? To worship the Lord. This is not the last altar that he will build. It's the first and second of many. He called on the name of the Lord by faith, and then he traveled south toward the pasture land of the Negev. This is a dry region of some 4,500 uh, 4, square miles, 4,500. Uh, it stretches along from Beersheba to the Sinai Highlands, and, and that's where we'll pick it up next week. But the most important thing is not lifespans and the, all of the archaeology and history I shared with you. The most important thing is I asked the worship team to come on is where are you in your faith journey? Are you an Ur of the Chaldeans, a land of idolatry, the world, and you need to get out? Okay. Don't beat yourself up. Lots of We all started there, amen? We all started in Ur of the Chaldeans, living a life of idolatry, unless you were born a Christian. And even if you were born in a Christian family, you weren't born a Christian. You were born again a Christian. Amen? So... Are you an Ur of the Chaldeans? Are you in that place of the worldliness and idolatry and you just need to get out? Well, get out. Or are you on your way? Are you in Haran? Are you on your way to the place God has called you? That's good. On the way, God will provide for your needs. I can tell you, I was called into the ministry very early on in my faith, uh, my, my journey with Christ. I'm trying to date it precisely here, but it's probably 1986. Okay? I ultimately ended up being ordained in the early 90s, 92. But I didn't plant this church with the help of so many 
my wife included, if it, 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 we didn't do that until 2003. So where was I in my faith journey? I was in Haran. God was providing. But there came a point where I had to move forward. And if I hadn't, you wouldn't be here. Are you with me? Maybe someone else would be here, and maybe other people would be here, but it wouldn't be me, and it wouldn't be you. Never underestimate the power of a surrendered will to God's promises. That is what we need to take home today. If you're in Ur, get to Haran. If you're in Haran, get to Canaan. If you're in Canaan, build an altar. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for your encouragement to surrender our will to you. Oh, Lord God, so many wonderful lessons here. Practical, historical, so much to digest. Something for each and every one of us. As we find ourselves now in a place of trying to trust you in a dark world, Lord, may you give us and provide for, give us everything we need, provide for our needs as we move forward, and then call us out to be in the place you've called us to be. And then once we're there, give us the strength, Lord, and the will to surrender our will to you. Lord God, it starts with a journey of faith that means so much in that it starts with leaving the world and coming to you. And there may be some here today who who haven't made that first step. And I pray for all those that, that haven't, that they would, that they would make that first step. It's just like to Abram, you've revealed yourself, you've revealed yourself to them. Right now, today, this morning, call them forward, Lord. Call them to a place of surrender that they would surrender their lives to you as their Lord and Savior, recognizing that you died on the cross for their sins. You rose again on the third day to give them newness of life, that you're coming again to judge the living and the dead and that they will be judged and deemed righteous through the redemptive process of the cross by putting their faith in you. Lord God, that decision is where it all begins, but oh my goodness, it doesn't even begin to end there. There is so much ahead of us as we journey in our faith towards becoming the people that you've called us to be. And one day when we're called home, may we have traveled every mile of the journey you've called us to. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.